0: Yeah, Kraft Heinz has got a new Big Boss man. In fact, it's bringing in a new CEO as it looks to break out of a prolonged slump that has really... Been tough on the company since its bid to buy Utilever fell apart, uh, I think it was roughly two years ago. Stock, by the way, though, little change. Let's bring in Craig Giamona. He follows the company and the space so closely as consumer uh, reporter here at Bloomberg News. He's joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Big boss man. They've got a new guy in town, right? They do. You spoke to him. I did. Yep. Uh, Not a ton of
3: specifics on exactly what he plans to do. You know, he's from the 3G universe. Who is this guy? He's an InBev, Anheuser-Busch InBev veteran, 20 years there. He's been running global marketing for six years. Um, Miguel Yeah, That's right. So he's from the 3G universe. So the big question once he takes over will be, is he going to diverge from kind of the 3G playbook, or does he just sort of come in, and is it just a different face with the same strategy? Because I think investors are looking for a reset here. The stock has been hammered for the last two-plus years, and they need to do something.
4: Yeah, and I'm I'm curious though. I mean, it, the the big knock on on Kraft Heinz has basically been a bit out of touch with the current tastes, especially in the United States. And here you bring in a Anheuser Busch guy. Um, it, it it's a little different. I mean, when you're running a beer company, there aren't a lot of critics, you know. And now you're like, how do you switch that into a consumer uh, thing like, did you know, hot dogs?
3: Yeah, it's a fair question. What he I asked I asked him that question, and what he said was that you know in beer we sort of figured this out we knew we missed the craft movement but we realized that you know in Nigeria we can sell Budweiser as a premium brand and we need a different strategy for the US so it, in, when I read between the lines of that press release, I think they're looking for his global focus. You know, Kraft Heinz is 70 percent U.S. revenue, roughly. Mm-hmm. They're looking to maybe grow in China. This guy did have some success with Budweiser in China. So I think you're right that beer and packaged food are different. But they're hoping that sort of his experience selling in markets outside the U.S. and, you know, dealing with a big slump because the big beer brands have not done well. Bud Light, mm-hmm. Budweiser, those kind of brands have suffered because of craft, but they think that maybe this guy is the one to, to fix it up.
0: Can okay, I tell you, Craig, I'm looking at their list of brands and I'm thinking, all right, Classico, actually, we were at the beach, so we were kind of doing things easy. So we did do a jar of sauce with some pasta. Um, but craft, jello in general. Right. Um, all right uh maybe macaroni and cheese like these aren't brands necessarily that we're eating anymore no
3: and it it, you know it hasn't been a brand story at Kraft Heinz right the story was that these guys take over they took over Heinz in 2013 with Buffett's financing right they fired thousands of people closed the factories the profit margins within 18 months were at the top of the industry they buy Kraft they fire thousands of people they cut they shut the factories profit margins go up Wall Street loves it Then February 2017 happens. They try to buy Unilever. Paul Pullman, the CEO, basically prevents that from happening, however exactly he did that. Since then you know, $70 in market cap wiped out off of Kraft Heinz. So it was always about buying something else, and that's what Bernardo couldn't get done.
0: But that's fascinating. Doesn't it ultimately, though, have to be about buying somebody else that actually has some brands that are going to sell, or is it just going to be a financial engineering after financial engineering at this point?
3: Look, that's the question. These guys will say, look, we put $10 into Oscar Mayer. We made natural hot dogs. You know, we know how to do brands. But the story on Wall Street with these guys is the ability to do major deals, cut the costs, and improve the profit margins. That cycle, which was basically two years, two years, got really thrown off when Unilever didn't happen. And here we are all these years later, more than two years later, they still haven't done a deal. And look at where the stock is. It peaked, I think, at $95. Mm-hmm. It's in the low 30s now. Like I said, $70 billion in market cap wiped out since the day that Unilever deal fell apart.
4: So with that $70 billion market cap wiped out, can they do a deal now? if they want if they chose to
3: that's another great question obviously the stock that hurts their ability so the big thing also is buffett and any sign of kind of the crack in that relationship so buffett's sitting on a lot of cash if buffett still believes in these guys which he says he does they could probably do it but they're certainly in a much weaker position than they were in february 2017 when they came for unilever with the shares like you said have lost basically two-thirds of their value
0: so what happens or how are you anticipating what what, like kind of the next step here I don't know. What are we expecting?
3: So, according to you know the incoming CEO, he's going to spend. He's taking over July first. He's going to spend the time between. That's a little over two months. He's going to get under the hood and study the business and come up with his strategy. He also interesting to me. He also kind of basically said that he needs to be an internal cheerleader because he didn't say this, but you read between the lines. Maybe morale, obviously, not that great at Kraft Heinz at the moment. So he said that he has to go in. We there. We got a
0: private equity firm that's looking to take out costs, right? And basically fire right. people. Fire people. Hook up with somebody so they can, you know, kind that's of right. Keep doing their thing. Thing. That's
3: right. So he has to basically sort of do a sales job on the strategy because what's happened now, I mean, there was a $15 billion write down back in February. That's when this all really hit the fan right. where people realized the extent of the destruction and value that's gone on there. And, you know, Buffett admitting that they overpaid. So, There's a lot of questions now about the strategy, which was Wall Street loved it for a long time, but I think that this guy has to, both to Wall Street and internally, kind of convince people that they're on the right track. Well, if
4: if he's going to be a cheerleader, he's kind of telling you maybe a deal isn't imminent because if you're trying to go around bucking up people's morale and then six months to a year later buy another company and start slicing heads off again, complete waste of time, isn't it?
3: Yeah, you, that, that's a good point. And I think, you know, the the atmosphere right now is trickier than it was maybe in February 2017. It's not clear who they would buy. They need some international exposure. You know, people like General Mills and Kellogg and Campbell have been mentioned over the years as potential targets. But those are U.S. businesses for the most part. So, you know, maybe people have talked about them buying Mondelez and recombining the companies that, that split. Wow. So it's, you're right. It's not clear what they do. And in the meantime, they're behind on R&D. The food trends change faster than they ever have. You know, right. these, these companies are not necessarily as nimble as they need to be to kind of keep up with where consumers are, and they've got a bunch of brands that need a lot of work.
0: What didn't he answer for you? On the, we just got about 40 seconds. He didn't
3: in. answer the specifics of exactly when these talks started. You know, we tried to sort of pin him down on whether it was the most recent earnings that pushed Bernardo out. He didn't really answer that question. He says he's been talking to them for several months. You know, he's, he's part of the 3G universe, so a little unclear exactly, how this all went down, but change at the top at Kraft Heinz is the main uh, takeaway.
0: But investors cannot be happy at this point.
3: They're not. Shares up a little bit, I think, just on the the basis of a reset. But no, investors have gotten hammered on this stock for the last two years.
0: All right. Couldn't leave it on that note. Craig, I know it's been a busy day. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Craig Giamona, consumer reporter at Bloomberg News. Check him out on Twitter. Yes, indeed. We're going to talk about cities. More specifically, we're going to talk about the $3.8 trillion state and local government debt market, otherwise known as the municipal bond market. It's up roughly 2.7% so far this year. That's according to the Bloomberg Barclays U.S. Municipal Index. Let's get into it. Vitz and I have been talking in the break about the muni bond market. Um, Gabe Dietrich is a Portfolio Manager of Municipal Fixed Income at Wells Fargo Asset Management, uh, joining us uh, on the phone from Milwaukee. Gabe, Nice to have you here with Vince and myself. You know, it is, it's such a huge market, right? And there's really a, a, a lot of different ways that investors can play us. Tell us a little bit about the environment right now, and what investors should be thinking when it comes to maybe having a portion of your uh, portfolio uh, exposed to munis.
1: Well, thanks for having me. And I, I certainly think that since tax reform, munis have been on the minds of many investors if you look back over the course of the last year, tax rates went down modestly, but with the loss of deductions, I think certainly many investors took note and found that the muni asset class, you know, specifically having that tax-exempt income, is extremely powerful. Whether if it's looking across nationwide at at different municip- municipalities or municipal issuers, or even stuff right in your own backyard in your own state, uh, knowing that if you're in a high tax state like New York or New Jersey. It can be a way to avoid some of those income taxes. And, and, and we feel it right now in demand. I mean, the, the money coming into municipal funds has been extremely strong year to date. I would, I would put the first quarter up with the five highest annual totals for net inflows, just to give you a picture of how much money has uh, come into this asset class.
4: And Are you seeing that mostly come from the salt states like New York, New Jersey, et cetera?
1: It's been it's been certainly a trend. If you look at California and New York, those bonds trade with an extra price premium, uh, noting that individuals are willing to pay a little bit more, recognizing that not only do they avoid that federal income tax bill on that interest, but also the state and potentially local. Uh, income tax bill.
0: So, Gabe, I have to say, Vince and I have been talking uh, before you you came on in our uh, break, and just thinking about retirement planning, Vince. You're probably you yeah, no, well, a good point. Yeah, I mean, point. a lot
4: of people sort of, I mean, will tell you to shy away from, uh, you know, uh, munis in your retirement account because they're already triple tax free. My question to you is, if you had munis in your retirement account and generated, just say a dollar, just for for a number, and all you took out every year was a dollar in out of that fund. Would that be triple tax-free because it, all of the income is it, the the money that you're taking out is being generated by triple tax-free assets?
1: Well, typically in a retirement account, you wouldn't see municipals, right? They, you already have a tax exemption there. So many many people have looked at muni's when they've ext- you know been extremely mispriced. Um, you know we've had periods like that in the market historically. You know the summer of 2013 comes to mind during the taper tantrum but generally speaking you're going to want to use this in your non-qualified accounts you know ultimately no matter where you put it though the nice thing about this asset class is it tends to exhibit lower volatility you know the price doesn't move around as much and you tend to have very low default rates and, and default incidents and and if you do have a credit problem recovery rates tend to be higher than other credit markets out
2: there
0: and I'm assuming in terms of strategy, I'm thinking for most investors, especially retail investors, what, are you thinking they should be looking at a fund that's got a mixture in terms of durations or what, or different you know, exposures? How do you play it? Yeah. How do you do it?
1: I think the fund is, is certainly been the trend. It's been the prevailing trend. If you look at uh, capital flows, which the Fed tracks, money has pretty consistently, quarter in and quarter out, been shifting from being directly household held you know, individuals buying munis on their own or maybe through a broker. And it's converted into munis held via mutual funds. And I think part of the reason that's been happening is because that $3.8 trillion market size you talked about at the open, that's the same size the market's been the last five years. So, there's been a scarcity of bonds out there. And I think some institutions Clearly go out and, and try to gobble up as much as they can when new deals price for an airport or a hospital or, or even state and local um, issuers so those those mutual funds they do provide you instant diversification, but you know many inve- individuals have had a lot of success investing directly, and that certainly is still viable, although it, it just becomes challenged when when trying to find good bonds in a, in a market where there's been not enough supply to satisfy the demand.
0: Hey, get- Go ahead. Oh, no, I was say. just going
4: to say, given the, the the spread of the different bonds you were talking about, are your favorites the general obligation or or specific bonds for specific projects?
0: And just got about 30 seconds.
1: Yeah. I, right now, we've actually been focusing a little bit more on general obligation debt. I think the market has been focused so much on revenue bonds. We're late in the economic cycle. Uh, those tend to be most in favor at the end of, end of an economic cycle. And, and we're a little bit contrarian in terms of how we view the asset class, so we've, we've found op- opportunities in state and local debt uh, in particular.
0: All right. Going to leave it on that note. Hey, Gabe. Thank you so much. Gabe uh, Dietrich, uh, Portfolio Manager of Municipal Fixed Income over at Wells Fargo Asset Management joining us on the phone from Milwaukee.
4: Among our most read stories on the Bloomberg today, about how the 2020 Democratic presidential race moves into a crucial new phase this week. Here to tell us why, Jennifer Epstein, White House reporter, Bloomberg News, from our Bloomberg 99.1 studio in Washington, D.C. Hi, Jennifer.
5: Hi, thanks for having me on.
4: So, question. A lot of questions on everyone's mind. Is the is the real feeling that Biden enters the race this week potentially, some are saying, as early as Wednesday?
5: Yes, that seems pretty clear to happen. I mean, what... As a lot of people close to him have been cautioning, you can never say he's definitely in until he actually <laughs> says he's in, uh, just because there were a lot of people right before he made that famous Rose Garden announcement in 2015 who thought that he was going to run and then he went the other direction on that. So there is a bit of caution around that, but there certainly is planning for this to happen Wednesday or you know, within a day or two after that, uh, not really even bleeding into next week, but this week, is the one when this is supposed to happen. Um, And we're supposed to, we're expecting a a video as kind of the first part of it. And then, you know, probably moving on to all the other traditional pieces of it, some media interviews, uh, some in-person events, and then he's off to the races. So
0: you and your colleagues, Sahil Kapoor, Joshua Green, uh, the story out on the Bloomberg, and you do talk about this. You also say in some ways the timing of the Mueller report couldn't be better
5: for Joe Biden. How come? Well, it certainly creates a bit of bit more of a contrast between, and and reminds Democrats of how serious the stakes are in this race. That this isn't just about finding somebody uh, who you know is fun to talk about at a party or is a good <laughs> hashtag, but this is somebody who uh, is going to be facing, in all likelihood, Donald Trump, and will have a lot of uh, a lot of damage that Trump has done to recover from in the in the perspective of Democrats, that there will be a lot to do at a policy level, but also at the level of bringing the country back together, um, kind of restoring a more, uh, you know, by the book policy wise, moralistic, um, you know not not violating kind of the the way that that American politics has has operated in, in some of the ways that it's good and as far as things like transparency um, and and that for for Biden in particular, it's a way to sh- to, co- to show where, you know, his decades of experience in the Senate and as vice president um, could be a, a kind of a reassuring uh, force for, for the country.
4: So do people like Warren essentially put him in the hot seat? I mean, he hasn't really outlined any specifics yet with one part of the party calling for an impeachment and Pelosi on the other side calling for patience. Uh, at, at some point, it seems very, very quick after he announces he's going to have to define what his stance is on that subject and how he is going to take the the party forward, assuming he continues to lead in the poll.
5: Yeah, you know, we're waiting for him on just about every big topic of the moment from impeachment to the Green New Deal or Medicare for all. We can kind of, you know, expect that he will take a moderate position on all of those things and will not be all in for any of them. Um, but until he actually says that, we don't know that for sure. And it's, you know, even smaller mom- issues of the moment. He he has not, you know, said much of anything in, in his events. He has been very controlled. He has not done a real interview uh, since about September. And that was more around the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings and his own uh, past with Anita Hill uh, and, and what happened in that. Uh, Clarice Thomas confirmed. Confirmation hearing, 1991. So you know, just to get up to date with him on all the issues will be a big piece of these next few weeks. I can't believe the
0: first set of formal debates among the Democratic candidates is just what two months away? Two months
5: away, the very end of June.
0: But those, I'm assuming, at that point we'll start to whittle down, right? We're over 20 here, right, with potential Democratic
5: contenders. Yeah, Biden, by a lot of counts, would be the 20th, depending on who you kind of. Don't Mm -hmm. count or don't count as far as who's a a top-level candidate. Um, And if there are more, including Senator Michael Bennett from Colorado is expected to get in, New York Mayor Bill de Blasio may get in, you may be above that. And 20 is currently kind of the cap that the DNC has set for the debate stage. They right now are planning Two debates over the course of two consecutive nights, um, and they say that the people who are in it will not be an adult table and a kids table, which is sort of how it was described. <laughs> oh my described. god, that is precious. <laughs> well, that was how it was described in 2016 when there were around I think 16, 17 candidates on the Republican side, and you saw the ones who had some kind of a chance based on polling That's right. in the first in the first debate, and then you had this other yeah. one with all the people who were just you know running to to. Per- promote their personal brands, which somehow did not actually include Donald Trump because he was, you know, doing well in Pulse from early on. Um, so, I grew up sitting at the kids' table a lot. Yeah, it was really, it just hurt. It was hurt. never fun. It just hurt. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so I it, the Democrats have been trying to avoid that they want both of the debates to be... Uh, you know perceived well they don't want any candidate who is considers him or herself to and whose supporters consider that person to be a serious candidate yeah. to be relegated to a undercard they want you know you know potentially you would have Sanders and Biden in one debate and you know Warren and Booker and Harris in another just based on you know probability yeah. but that you wouldn't end up with all those people in one and then you know all the all the house democrats and, and other you know odds and ends in another that that's what they're trying to avoid it will be another interesting uh, election or leading up to election cycle hey just got about 40 seconds left here jen
0: i do wonder if can the democrats can some pursue impeachment um, you know, moves and the others kind of focus on issues that helped get Democrats up their standing uh, in the midterm elections. Can they straddle both? Just
5: got about thirty seconds here. Yeah, I think as long as you, as long as somebody like Warren is not say, saying and putting the other candidates on the spot, let's say on the debate stage, to say, "How dare you not support impeachment?" If unless we get to that point and you see it coming from. A couple of the other leading candidates saying, you know, shameful of of anybody running for president as a Democrat to say that they don't think that uh, Donald Trump should be impeached right now that 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 shorter that you're you're going to be able to see people survive without weighing in on that i can't believe first debate two months
0: away good stuff uh jen thank you so much jennifer epstein white house reporter bloomberg news check her out on twitter at j-e-n-e-p-s she's joining us from our 91 991 studio in the nation's capital you are listening to bloomberg business week carol master along with vince signorella
4: i'm in my car I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Smooth, mate.
1: I wanna drive. Just drive, Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. <laughs>
5: is the drive to the close that punk music will drive us till the dawn
1: on bloomberg radio
4: time for a drive to the close alan zaffron senior managing director and wealth manager at first republic private wealth management over 139 billion in assets under management with us from palo alto california how are you sir
2: Vince, I'm doing great. How Excellent. are you doing?
4: Doing fine. First question I have for you. We talked about this on an earlier segment. The uh, the growth leading out of China for the first quarter, primarily, at least as people think, driven by monetary policy stimulus. Now they're talking about pulling that back. How is that going to affect us in 2Q?
2: Uh, that's not going to affect us in 2Q. It might affect us in 4Q or 1Q of 2020. It takes about 12 months time from the point at which policies are in place before they show up in the data. I would tell you that there were so many fiscally stimulatory policies from China in the previous 12 months they were so worried about their growth rate. You're going to see the benefit of that showing up in the second and third quarter this year, particularly in the non-U.S. equity markets. So there's a delayed effect, and I think there's more to go before it becomes problematic.
4: That's really interesting. When you say non-U.S. markets, where's your favorite place to be?
2: Well, I really think you have to spread it out. I, I think there's just too much pessimism, in, uh, particularly in uh, Europe. Europe is a greater beneficiary of uh, Chinese trade than the U.S., and if the trade tensions moderate between the U.S. and China, even though there's concerns that the U.S. might go after Europe, the reality is Europe is a big beneficiary of just a better global environment. And the other thing that you're tailwind is the dollar. The dollar, if you've noticed, is starting to flatten out, if not even decline moderately relative to non-U.S. currencies. And I think you'll see that as a tailwind for non-U.S. equities in the second and third quarter of this year.
0: Oh, it helps if I turn on the button. Uh, It certainly is a Monday. Hey, Alan, so I do wonder – I know. Wow. Those long weekends. I do wonder – how politics is beginning to play into your thinking. Because, you know, we often talk about some of the initiatives, whether it's U.S.-China trade or, you know, kind of pick your policy, some of the things that President Trump, then-candidate Donald Trump, campaigned on, and he's thinking about 2020 elections and being able to say, I promised you this, I did this, you know, and so on and so forth. How much of politics um, and a big presidential election – Does that play into kind of your thinking, your outlook here on the markets, and whether or not we see, you know, this bull market come to an end? Or Uh, keep going?
2: (laughs) Yeah, politics are a framework, but they're not a driver. What we do know is this, the third year out of four years in a presidential U.S. presidential cycle are the best year of the equity markets. And the reason is politicians love to put in place policies that amplify the economy right in front of the election. Those policies start to show up in the third of the four years, and markets being anticipatory vehicles anticipate the good times to come in the fourth year of the four-year election cycle and tend to go up in advance. So politics set the tone. What's really beneficial in this moment is the fact that you just went through a bear market. We can debate. I think this whole thing about we haven't had a bear market in 10 years is noise. We just saw small cap stocks fall 27 per cent. Peak to valley and large caps fell 19.8% Peak to valley. That was a bear market. And now what you've done is you set yourself up for a short-term bull market, which we're watching right now. We're already up 23% from the lows in late December. You're in a low interest rate environment, low inflation and moderate earnings growth, and valuations are not excessive you're in the environment right now where you're set up for good returns probably for the next 12 months before we start worrying about all the banter of problems that could come post-election. So politics set the framework, but the economic conditions drive the markets. And right now, all things equal, they're favorable.
4: And that plays well into what you said earlier about the rest of this year, given the stimulus from China uh, lifting lifting all boats. Um, we get the Fed no one is expecting the Fed to do anything. Um, is it possible we get economic growth that runs away from us a little bit, that gets them back into the question, and then maybe dampens your growth expectations a little?
2: It's a risk, but the conundrum is we're not seeing any inflation. You know, it's crazy. The jobless claims figures yeah. that just came out were the lowest in 50 years. Him. And yet the, the uh, personal consumption expenditure index, the, the data that the Fed looks at, we're running at 1.4%. There's no inflation. So how, Alan how do you ex- right now is in a great place.
0: How do you explain that? Peter Coy did a great cover story last week about kind of the, uh, talked about the death of inflation and just all the different theories that are out there. Vince and I were talking in a break about, you know, older workers. They're not moving around. They're not you know, if they're in a job and they feel safe and confident, you know, they're going to stay there. They're not going to push for wage increases. They're happy to get benefits because they've lived through the downturn, you know, 10 years ago and they remember it. There's lots of things going on. Globalization, uh, lack of unions. Has something fundamentally changed when it comes to inflation or inflation sparking?
2: Yeah, I think, um, there's a couple. You hit a lot. Globalization is clearly a driver of lower inflation. The use of technology is clearly a driver of lower inflation. Uh, the other thing I could tell you is maybe we're not accurately measuring what our productivity is. So, what I'd argue is uh, what's happened now is we're setting ourselves up with various technological tools. If they eventually, on the back end of this, create more and better and higher paying jobs, eventually the inflation will show up in a lagged event. Right now, we're seeing the disinflationary pressures. Lower-wage jobs are being eliminated, and people can't find them and how to get replaced. When we finally sort through this industrial revolution we're living through, we will be inflation way back on the back end, but we're probably a decade or two away from that.
4: A lot of that inflation, I think, may, may be as something I was looking at this morning. Seems to follow on China imports, and as China imports decline, it seems like global inflation falls off, at least as the IMF measures it. If if we see a pickup back in growth in China and and global markets gain and emerging markets as well, and and China begins to import more and, and grow further, we might see a little bit of that inflation that the central bankers have been. Uh, crying for if you will but again i i do have to agree with you it's not going to be significant enough to bring a central bank in and to, to do anything with the rates
2: no i i don't i don't believe that's the case the, the the thing about china the big argument for the emerging markets is the consumerization of the the mass that have yet to really you know come up from what was relatively po- relative poverty levels as far as we'd measure in America. So there is an argument for an emerging middle class that will eventually drive inflation. But again, you're talking probably a decade or two out before it really shows up in global inflation figures in the short term. That's not going to be a problem.
0: So Alan, just got about 40 seconds here. So what interesting investment moves are you making as of late?
2: I am. I am the same as always. Stay the course. <laughs> Clearly, the markets are telling you things are good. Things obviously come out of nowhere. Um, I do think people are underestimating the potential for non-U.S. equities to do well, simply because in nine of the last 10 years, U.S. equities have done better than non-U.S. markets. Yeah. So recency tends to bias people. I also think there's a chance the dollar will diminish in value relative to non-U.S. currencies, and that means your non-U.S. equities go up even more due to the currency effect. But right. lastly, you've got to stay diversified. You just don't know what could come out of the blue that will cause a problem.
0: Well, it's fascinating to watch. NASDAQ's up almost 21% this year. You've got the S&P up about 16%, and the Dow almost up 14% this uh, year so far here in 2019. Alan Zaffron, thank you, thank you. Senior Managing Director, Wealth Manager at First Republic Private Wealth Management, over $139 billion in assets under management on the phone from Palo Alto, California.
1: Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, Only
4: on Bloomberg Radio.